Lord, we come this morning to your holy, infallible, inerrant word, which you set as a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that you've commanded us that like a newborn baby who would long for milk, that we are to long for the pure, unadulterated milk of the Word of God. Thank you that it is like life to our souls that the Spirit uses to bring our thinking in conformity with your own. So, Father, you know I've prepared as best I can from a human point of view with the help of your spirit, and I pray now that you'd help me to deliver the message that you've put into my heart, that the lethargy lethargy that we see in our day that characterizes so many evangelical Christians who are so distracted by the things of this world that you would arrest our attention today and put in us some spiritual steel to live for Christ in these godless days. And so, Holy Spirit of God, we invite you as the teacher, the one who inspired this word to be our illuminator today, to help us to see and understand what you have penned, that we might apply it. Come and fill me and anoint me and use me in every way and help those, Spirit of God, who have never met you, whether they are here or on another campus or listening through the internet or later on the radio in some other state or city. Help those to come to know Christ as Lord. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. Take God's word. Would you this please this morning turn to the book of Revelation chapter 19. We've been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. And let me just say, if you're new to the Bible, if you're just a casual reader of the Scripture, you cannot miss the fact that the return of Jesus Christ is a central theme that's found throughout the Word of God. The Bible's never been silent on this subject. Christ's second coming to the earth to rule and reign on the earth is mentioned in some 17 Old Testament books. The Lord Jesus mentioned His second coming some 21 times in the Gospels, seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament in some way mention the return of Jesus either in the rapture or literally physically to the earth. There's over 300 references alone in the Old Testament that speak of Christ's return, and that should not surprise us because when Christ returns, He will complete our salvation. We are justified. We are saved from the penalty of sin the moment we believe. We are being sanctified We are being freed from the power of sin as our minds are renewed and we are conformed into the image of Christ. But some blessed, glorious day, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. God will give us a glorified body like Christ. And this morning, we come to a somewhat fascinating section of Scripture. Now, for most Christians, they know certain terms like, oh, rapture and uh, antichrist and 666. And some unbelievers even know some of those terms. But virtually every non-Christian, at least here in the States, have heard the term Armageddon. Armageddon is almost a, a byword to describe any kind of catastrophe or any kind of horrible event that could take place. And some understand, too, that there is coming a literal event known as the campaign, or sometimes we call it the Battle of Armageddon. And so even if you know just a little bit of the Bible, you know that there is a stage that is being set for this incredible event 
that will bring Jesus back from heaven to the earth. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle, and God is putting all the pieces together as he is setting the stage as a sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful God. I mean, think about it. For many sitting in this room, you were alive on May the 14th, 1948, when Israel became a nation. That was of great prophetic significance because the Bible said they would become a nation in one day. And God said at the end of time, he would gather the Jewish people from the nations of the world and bring them back into the land. And we are witnessing that, even from 600,000 in 1948 to six and a half million Jews living in that land today. There's only about 12 million Jews on the entire planet. That's not an accident, and God said that would happen in the latter times. At the end of time, before the second coming of Messiah to the earth, and so today there are Jews from some 100 nations of the world living in Israel, speaking some 40 different languages. In our lifetime, we've seen the rise of Russia to the status of a world power and now playing a very critical role in the Middle East this morning. We've seen the rise of the European Empire forming the former Roman Empire. And there will be a coalition of nations that will come together. And from 10 nations, there will sprout up an 11th, a little horn. And from that nation will come the Antichrist. In our lifetime, we've seen the rise of a sodomite society, something that God said would happen at the end of time, that the coming of the Son of Man would be like the days of Lot. In addition, we've seen growing sexual immorality in the heterosexual community, something that God said would happen at the end of time. And never before, I suppose, has the prediction of Ezekiel 38 and 39, what's called the War of Gog and Magog, been more ready to take place. Here's a chart that illustrates some of the nations that will be involved. Uh, there's a man by the name of Gog, whom the Bible says will lead this coalition of nations. And the nations involved will be Magog. That represents six of the stand nations, along with Put, that is modern-day Libya, Cush, which is modern-day Sudan, Rosh, which is Russia, Persia, which is Iran, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Beth Togomara, which today comprise modern Turkey. Now, I spoke on this once before, all the way back in the sixth chapter of the Revelation, I think. But in either case, someone came up to me, and I'm often asked it, why does God use all these strange names to describe some of these future events? And it's really a good question, and it's one we need to ask. Think about Byzantium. It was once the capital of the Roman Empire. When Constantine became the emperor of Rome, he moved the capital from Rome to Byzantium. And of course, he renamed that city Constantinople. Um, and of course, the Muslims in the 1500s overtook that place, and today it's called Istanbul to this date since the 1500s. Or think about a place by the name of St. Petersburg. Uh, it was a place in the former Soviet Union in Russia, modern-day Russia. And in 1914, it was renamed to uh, uh, Petrograd. I had to think there for a second, Petrograd. And then, of course, in 1924, when Lenin came into office, it was called Leningrad. And then with the fall of the Soviet Union, it is once again called St. Petersburg. So these places are always changing names. 
Well, God in His wisdom knows that it is far wiser to trace a nation back to its ancestral lines because ancestral lines never really change. Here's a chart of Noah and his three sons. If you remember, Noah and Mrs. Noah came off the ark with Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their three wives. And of course, if you look over there on the far right on the name Japheth, one of the three sons, he had seven sons. And one of those seven sons is uh, a man named Magog. And so we speak of the battle of Gog and Magog. When I preached the book of Genesis, we went through every verse. And I know that very often chapter 10 is just kind of overlooked and not even mentioned. We went through every line. And I told you that while it may seem like filler to some people, it's a chapter of Scripture you will come back to time and time and time again. There are the table of nations if you're committed to studying the whole of Scripture. And so there is this man by the name of Magog whom Josephus tells us were the Scythians. And Magog today represents all the stand nations, Kakistan, uh, Uzbekistan, and so forth. And in Ezekiel, there's this prince by the name of Gog, who's going to lead a battle called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And what's very interesting is that this morning, today as I speak, just north of Israel in a place called Syria, there are forces from Russia, Iran, and Turkey assembled there. Three nations that hate Israel and that are mentioned in a coming battle against Israel. There's never been a time in the history of the world when God has done more to set the stage for the return of His Son from heaven. And so as we study Scripture, this is not some mere academic exercise as we look at prophecy. It's designed to change your life, to make you more like Christ, to make you ready and prepared for the return of God's Son from heaven. Now, I want to begin by reading our passage, if you have a Bible I know some of you don't bring one yet because you're new to the church and you've never needed a Bible in church. You need one here. Now, I know the slides are there, but those slides are largely for first-time guests and occasionally for charts that we can all benefit from. But you really need a Bible, and I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a Bible in your lap. Revelation chapter 19, beginning now in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth And their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, let me set the context of the 19th chapter, both broadly and then specifically. Here on this chart, to give you just some perspective, there are two yellow arrows, one that goes up, that represents the rapture. It's from 
the Latin translation, people say the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in our English Bible, but it's in the Latin Bible that was used for a thousand years by the church. It's the word rapto. It's called harpazo in Greek. It's the catching up of the church. And that's the next event on God's prophetic schedule. Then the next yellow arrow goes down, and that represents Christ coming back from heaven with his saints to the earth to fulfill all the promises that he made in the Old Testament to Israel where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. We are going to study that. In between these two yellow arrows is a seven-year period. Now, the space between the rapture and the start of that seven-year period is not specific to time. All we know is that there's a brief period of time. Maybe it's hours, maybe it's days, could be even weeks from the rapture of the church to the signing of the peace treaty with Israel. But when that treaty is signed, a seven-year period known as the tribulation starts. It's all a time of tribulation. In the middle of that seven-year period, there's an event that takes place where it goes from tribulation to great tribulation. It's a horrible time. It's the worst time that man will ever know in the history of humanity. Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those who are saved during this seven-year period, the Scripture says those days will be cut short. If you think of all of the atrocities since Adam and Eve, if you think of all the natural disasters that have happened, Jesus said you can put them all together and they don't even begin to compare to this seven-year period. This is a prelude to the second coming of Christ. These things must take place before Jesus can come to the earth. Nothing has ever needed to be happened to be fulfilled for the rapture. It could have happened one week after Pentecost, whereas the second coming is a prophecy-driven event. But what is amazing is that we are seeing things that God would said would happen at the end of time, like the rebirth of Israel and the gathering of Israel into the land. God said that would happen at the end of time. We'll study this when we come to the 20th and 21st chapters, that that will happen at the end of time before the second coming of Messiah. And so as you see these prophecies being fulfilled, you know the rapture, which must come first, is that much closer. Now, people will sometimes say, well, we're obviously in the birth pangs that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse, because there seemingly is more earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis, and no, not really. Those things just show that the pregnancy is real, but the birth pangs in the truest sense, as you read Matthew 24, don't begin until the beginning of the tribulation period. And Jesus, of course, likened that time frame to a woman who's in labor. We're like a woman in labor. The pains increase in frequency and in intensity. And we've seen that there's 21 judgments that come in this seven-year time frame. If you studied with us the seal judgments, we saw that they only affected one-fourth of the earth. But then when we came to the trumpet judgments that start right at the midpoint of the tribulation, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation that will take place that the prophet Daniel wrote about, he said, look out, because literally it's going to get worse like we've never seen it. And so we began to study the trumpet judgments. 
And the trigger for that event is when the Antichrist goes into the temple and makes himself out to be God along with his false prophet. And so the trumpet judgments, some 13 times over, were told affect one-third of the earth. The birth pangs are getting more intense. And then when you come to the bowl judgments, which happen right at the end of the tribulation, they come like trip hammer blows, very quick, very intense. Some think they only last a month long. I don't know. But they seem to be very very quick and hard, they affect the entire planet. They're horrible. Men will wish they were dead during this time. And of course, the error that man has made as people suppress the truth of God, the Bible says they give him no praise, no thanks, and God gives them over to a depraved mind, and they worship the creation rather than the creator God. And that's very much where we are today. People who worship Mother Nature rather than Father God. They're they're members of this green movement, and all they can talk about is climate warming. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of the planet. God commands us to be stewards of it. But we're talking about people who are literally worshiping the planet. And God is going to judge the planet, His air, His seas, His rivers, His world. And they're going to see that what they've made literally a divinity, He is going to judge. Now, when we come to this section of Scripture, as we've studied between chapters 6 and 18, the Great Tribulation, the thoughtful Christian would say, well, what's the purpose in all of this? Does God just enjoy watching people suffer? No, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The purpose is twofold, as we've studied. One, to bring Israel to faith. The Jewish people are largely in unbelief. They do not believe Yeshua HaMashiach, that Jesus is the Messiah. But they are going to believe. And this time frame in the Old Testament is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a very Jewish book, as we've seen. God first predicts he'll regather the people into the land. But then during this seven-year period, he's going to regenerate Israel such that by the end of the tribulation, Paul will write, all Israel will be saved. All the unbelieving Jews by this time will be dead. And at the second coming of Christ, the only ones who are left will be believing Jews. Now think about the Jewish people for just a moment. We're going to study when we come to the 21st chapter, this concept of replacement theology and to see how false it is, how contrary it is to God's Word. There are people today who say that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with the nation of Israel. And in many ways, they are really mocking the faithfulness of God, I don't think consciously, but God made some promises to the Jewish people, and He is a promise-keeping God. And not only do they mock the faithfulness of God by saying the church has replaced Israel, They have to really distort Scripture and spiritualize many of the events and promises that have yet to take place. But how is it today that Israel exists? How is it that they have a national conscience, a national heritage of sorts, and a national vision? How is that? How does it happen? Why are not all the nations that they fought against when they went into the promised land. How is it that all those nations are gone off the face of the earth, but Israel still exists? God has kept the dream alive. He gave them throughout every calendar year 
certain things that they were to do, certain festivals and holidays that they were to celebrate, and they have for thousands of years across the planet. Three times every day, every Orthodox Jew turns towards Jerusalem and he prays. Century after century on the ninth day of Av, which was the same day the first temple was destroyed that history records, and the same day the second temple was destroyed as history records, they fast and pray that God would give them a third temple. Every year at the conclusion of Passover, whether a Jew is living in Africa or Europe or Australia, they sing a hymn next year in Jerusalem. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of traditions and commands that God gives that has kept these people together because God chose this nation, and as He used Israel to bring about the first coming, He is going to use Israel to bring about the second coming. Now, in Revelation 6 through 18, in those chapters, we've seen Israel coming to faith, 144,000 Jews who preach the gospel to the world. And their Jewish brethren are in whole going to be converted. Listen to what Zechariah the prophet writes. God said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, Messiah, the one they have pierced, crucified. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now, let me tell you, anyone today who claims to be a born-again Christian and is an anti-Semite has deceived himself. If you don't love Israel, you don't love the living God. And if you don't love Jewish people, you don't love the Savior. Jesus is a Jew. And by the way, this morning in heaven, he is still a Jew in his humanity. All of the ethnicities, every tribe and tongue and nation will be retained. Now, how we will be able to understand one another, the confusion that came at Babel, I don't know. Maybe people who speak Spanish will still speak Spanish, and I'll just know what they're saying, like someone with the gift of interpretation. Or maybe we'll speak one language, I don't know, but the ethnicities of the world, and Jesus is the God-man this morning, is a Jew. And people who hate Jews hate the Lord Jesus. But the Bible is clear, while the rapture can happen at any moment, The second coming cannot happen until the Jews acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Do you remember on that day when Jesus presented himself in fulfillment of a prophecy that Daniel recorded in the ninth chapter? This very day, he said, you should have recognized it. And he wept over the city. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. It happened in 70 AD. The the house of God was desolate. It was totally destroyed. And then Jesus said, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, the Bible teaches, cannot come back to the earth until the Jewish people are willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the great tribulation, chapters 6 through 18, is designed to convert Israel. 
But God also wants to use this time to give many who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power a chance to repent and believe in Jesus. And so the Great Commission will be fulfilled during this time. In Matthew 24 and verse 12, Jesus made this statement, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. One of my friends, Dan Scribner, he's head of the Joshua Project, he is... um, compiled the names of every unreached people group in the world for mission agencies. He spent 30 years of his life doing it. Incredibly bright young man, I guess young. I I knew him. I still think of him as a college student in our ministry at Duke. He's my age, basically. But I'm young, right? So... In either case, you know, I received a newsletter from him yesterday showing all the unreached people groups of the world, and sometimes it's just overwhelming. And sometimes you will hear a Christian falsely and ignorantly say, Jesus cannot come back until we reach every one of these unreached people groups, that the rapture can't happen. No, this verse has nothing to do with the rapture. It has everything to do with the second coming. And during this seven-year period, 144,000 Jews, along with two witnesses, along with an angel, will preach the gospel to the whole world, and then the end will come. People from every tribe and tongue and nation who have never heard the gospel before will hear it with clarity and in power. Now, that brings us into the 19th chapter. The 19th chapter is a textual bridge between the end of the Great Tribulation and the return of Jesus to the earth with His armies. Notice the first three words in chapter 19, after these things. We've seen that all the way through the Revelation, metatata, after these things. After what things? After the events of chapters 17 and 18 with the fall of economic Babylon, with the final seven bold judgments that come upon the earth, we've seen that every time God says after these things, it is a structural marker to let you know that there's a change in what is going to unfold that is going to take place. So in conjunction with the conclusion of the seven bowls, after these things, John hears something like a loud voice. A phono megale. We reverse the words megale phono and we get our word megaphone. He hears a loud, loud voice. And what was that loud, electrifying voice? We studied it in the first six verses. It was the song of the saved. God's people in heaven just praising God with all their might, like a mighty rushing waterfall, the noises compared to, because they know finally. Jesus is going to return, and Jesus is going to rule. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb will begin to take place. Now, sometimes we'll see pictures of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it looks kind of dreamy and cloudy, and, but it doesn't take place in heaven. We studied in the next paragraph that followed, it takes place upon the earth. Jesus will sit down, and we with Him And we're going to have a feast. And of course, Christ's return from heaven is compared to the marriage of a first century Jewish three-stage process. The first stage was the legal consummation. When a, a groom would go to the prospective father of the bride and they would settle on a purchase, a price, an arrangement. It really demonstrated that he was responsible, among other things, that he could leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Just like the father with the son 
agreed upon, as the book of Hebrews tells us, a purchase price for Christ's bride, the church. The second stage is when the groom comes months later to claim his bride. He leaves, he goes and prepares a place for his bride, but then he comes back. And Jesus uses that Jewish imagery in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the ten virgins. And then the third stage is the marriage supper. And it's not like a reception in our day that's two or three hours long. It's a whole week long. There's an illustration of it with the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. Well, we are right now in phase one. Christ, with His own blood, has purchased His bride, and He is gathering the bride together. Every day there are people across the world who are coming to Christ. And one of these days, the last believer who are members of the church will be saved, and the Father will say, Son, go get your bride. And that will kick in phase two. That will be the rapture of the church. And then in phase three, the marriage supper of the Lamb will happen at Christ's second coming. And so John can say here in verse 9, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then if you remember in verses 11 through 16, where we were last time, we studied Jesus coming back in great power. I'm just going to read it. Let me read it to you. And I saw I haven't opened and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John reminds us that monogrammed on the robe of Christ, draped over his thigh, are the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's significant. Because those are the same two titles that Moses gives to God the Father in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses wrote, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. But he is also given not just the title um, God of gods, that is Adonai Adonim, Lord of lords. He is also called King of kings, Malek. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Jesus is the visual manifestation of the Father. So when you see Jesus, you see the Father. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And what an encouragement this would be to the first century readers. Because the Caesars love to call themselves Lord. They love to call themselves the king of kings. But all of the presidents and all the prime ministers and all the leaders of this world will become Christ's footstool. In one of these days, Jesus is going to say, mount up. We will have been raptured. We'll be in heaven. And he'll say, mount up. Come with me. In puny little loss, we will be on a stallion led by the chief of the armies of God, Jesus himself, and we will come back to the earth. Now, that's where we're at. 
That's the backdrop. You ready? <laughs> you say, I'm ready. All right. Three simple truths concerning the coming collapse at Armageddon. First, Satan's forces are doomed at Armageddon. I want you to see that this is a scene of doom and gloom for Satan's collapsing kingdom as it's predicted by God on at least two different levels. First, the calling of the fowls, the calling of the fowls. Notice what the apostle John observes. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So as Jesus descends from heaven on his white stallion, and we are following him on white horses, He is compared, the Bible says, to this angel that is shining like the sun. Now think about this. Picture this for a moment. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road. And the Bible says his conversion took place at high noon, when the sun's the highest and brightest in the Middle Eastern sky. And it is bright in that part of the world, very bright and very hot. And if you take a candle and you light it in the middle of the day, it just seems to put out no light at all. It just seems almost dull. Yet when Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to him to be brighter than the noonday sun. So here's Christ coming back with his armies, and we defined what those armies were and who they represented. And here's this angel that the Bible says he um, is standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. So it's not that this angel is bright, but the backdrop behind him makes him bright. You go to a jewelry store, and the jeweler brings out a diamond, and he puts it on a beautiful black cloth to let us see the beauty and the magnificence of the diamond. Well, the backdrop here are birds, hundreds and millions of birds filling the skies. Now, some of you have been to Israel, and you will know that Israel is the apple of God's eye. He calls it the center of the world. It's at the point where three continents converge Africa, Asia, and Europe. And on one of our fall trips, we were there because scientists tell us, and birdiologists, or whatever their name is, what are they called? I forgot. Not birdiologists. You know what they are. Anyway, these birdiologists tell us that every year some 500 million birds fly over Israel. And there we were. We were down in the desert near the Dead Sea. And we looked up at the sky, and there were just millions of birds. They were making their annual migration to Africa beginning there in the fall of the the year. And here's this angel, and he cries out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven. And by the way, I don't think it's by accident that the fall festivals concerning the church, Christ's Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, so forth, that those were all fulfilled in the spring of the year. The events for the second coming, when the birds fly, (laughs) will be fulfilled in the fall of the year. Not the rapture, but the second coming. And so this angel shouts, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now think about this. Here's one of God's commanding angels. These angels are not fat little babies with halos. These angels are not effeminate type men as they are so often pictured. This is a determined warrior. And with the command 
of God behind him with a loud voice. He calls the fowls of the air. And if you remember the sermon that Christ gave there on the Mount of Olives, he spoke of all these vultures that will be gathered for this very battle that we're studying this morning. This is the Great Supper that takes place at the end of the campaign of Armageddon. Now, we'll see in just a moment that the armies of the world are at this point fighting against one person, God's Messiah. That can only mean that they're not coming to eat him, they're coming to eat them. And the world would be wise to fall on their face and to declare Jesus is Lord. But it's too late at this point. The past for people be, the time for people being saved is past. Come, assemble for the great supper of the Lord. Armies, as we're going to see in just a moment, are going to be representing all of the nations of the world. They're going to come across the planet to Israel, and they're going to be eaten when they are destroyed by birds. This is going to redefine international cuisine in the truest sense. God's angel is inviting the birds of the air to eat the flesh of these men. It's all over. You can come against Jesus but it's too late. Now, they've been fighting against Israel, and we'll study this a little bit more, but many of the details of that battle are filled in through the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Zechariah, and some of you right now are in an ABF where you're studying the prophet Zechariah. But when this day comes, while it will be a day of great joy for the church and all the Old Testament saints who will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, There'll be another supper, not the marriage supper of the Lamb, but what's called here the great supper of God, and it will be a time of great sorrow. By the way, the first supper that God instituted, we call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. It's not called communion. It's not called the Eucharist. In the Bible, it's called the Lord's Table. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to call it by those names, but what you typically discover that when someone calls it communion or the Eucharist, They've infused more into that ordinance than God actually says about it in Scripture. And millions of people across the world today will, in many churches, celebrate the Lord's table. We do at least once a month. But millions and millions of unbelievers will celebrate it as lost people, really with nothing to celebrate. It's just a religious act. But if you're here today and you know Jesus and you celebrate the Lord's table because you understand the true meaning behind those symbols, you'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you are lost, and if these events happen soon and the church is taken out and you're here for the great tribulation, you may be part of this bird's supper. Your flesh will be consumed, or at least the people who are representing you at this battle. Now look further, beyond the calling of the fowls, verse 18 teaches the consuming of the flesh. These birds are called to come and assemble. Why? So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Now this battle is going to result in an unparalleled slaughter where there are millions of dead people filling with their blood the grasses across Israel. If you are with us in our study of Revelation chapter 14, 
where we are first introduced to the campaign of Armageddon, the Bible tells us that the blood will be up to the horse's bridle. Now, if you've ever seen a horse gallop through a muddy field, the mud is up to the horse's bridle. He's just covered in mud. Take mud and replace it with blood. Take some 200 million soldiers who are dead and their blood is all over the grass of Israel, and you have blood up to the horses, bridles splattered all over those great animals. And by the way, it appears by the end of the tribulation, and again, people debate how long the uh, bold judgments take place, but they can't last that long or nobody would have lived because of the nature of them, and we studied each of them. Maybe they do take place in a matter of weeks at the end, but we know that in the fourth bowl judgment, men are scorched by the sun. And it might be through that scorching, there is what we call EMPs, electromagnetic pulses. And through those EMPs, the conventional warfare that we know today will be lost. And people will literally be there on horses at this point. In either case, this is a great supper. And notice the birds will eat the flesh of kings and of commanders. Mighty men, those who sit on the horses, all men, free, slaves, small, and great. So here are all these big shots, kings and commanders, the greatest of men, strong and confident men, and these small shots, <laughs> slaves and nobodies in this world, but they all taste the same to the birds. And these people who have come and assembled first to go against Israel and now to go against the Jew of all Jews, God's Messiah, they are eaten. The flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. You say, slaves? Yes, slaves. God writes about the future before it happens. The United Nation says there's somewhere between 21 million and 48 million people in the world today who are in slavery. And I'm not talking about human sex trafficking. We're talking about what's commonly called collateral debt bondage. Countries like India, they're number one. China is number two. Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, DR Congo, Myanmar, Bangladesh. Those are the top nations. And in many of those nations, if you are in debt to someone and you cannot pay the debt, then you become that person's slave. And if you don't pay the debt off in your lifetime, then your kin that follows you continues in that form of slavery. God, who knows all things, knows that this evil will continue right to the end, and so He includes both the free and the slaves. Then He dictates, notice, the small and the great, meaning from every social category in life, from the untouchables caste in India to the great royal families of the world. There's something about death that is the great equalizer. There's no big shots or small shots when people die. People are the same. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've had, how great your intellect is, how much social sway you have with the people of this world, if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, the people on this particular day will be nothing more than bird food. Now, Satan's forces are doomed 
at Armageddon. That's the first thing. I want you to notice now from verse 19 how Satan's forces are drawn to Armageddon. I want us to see how they are drawn to Armageddon. The Bible teaches that all the armies of the world, many today whom are enemies of the Lord Jesus, they will join forces in the ultimate act of anti-Semitism, and they will go against not just Israel, but the line of the tribe of Judah. Notice first how Satan gathers his forces. We are told now in verse 19, and I saw the beast. Remember, that's one of the names for the Antichrist. John gave us the name Antichrist in his first epistle, but the most common name for this man, this world leader, there are some 30 titles he's given in the Bible, is the beast. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war. Now, some find it difficult how all these nations could be so foolish to try to keep Jesus with his armies coming from heaven in this pitch battle somehow off the earth. But remember, they acknowledge this is Jesus who's coming. How do I know that? Because all the way back in Revelation 6 and verse 16, when the sealed judgments begin, they affirm that this was the wrath of the Lamb. And when you hate Jesus, you hate Jesus' people, the Jewish people. That's why I say any anti-Semite who claims to be a Christian is deceived. And the movement of anti-Semitism is sweeping the college campuses in America through the BDS movement. Boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. We have people in our Congress who are anti-Semites who hate the Jewish people. And so somehow they are going in their minds to destroy not only Israel, but Israel's king. In addition, you need to understand that not only are they blinded by their anti-Semitism, the Bible teaches that they are blinded by demonic forces. Hold your finger here and turn back a few pages. Go, if you will, to Revelation chapter 16 for just a moment. Revelation chapter 16. If you remember, we studied some of these demonic forces that are coming. Let me read to you verse 13. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, he was identified for us as Satan, out of the mouth of Satan, the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's his antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, John elaborates further. Look at verse 14. For these frogs, they are spirits of demons, performing signs, that is miracles, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, please notice how verse 14 ends by referring to this time as the great day of God Almighty. For this coming day will no longer be the great day of man. It will no longer be the great day of Antichrist. It will no longer be the great day of the false prophet. This day will be the great day of God Almighty. And this unholy trinity that mimics the holy trinity, where Satan takes the place of God the Father, where the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son, where the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist takes the place of the Holy Spirit, this unholy trinity will send out these demonic, frog-like spirits to deceive the people of this world. It's what Paul reminded us of. You might want to put next to this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. Let me read it to you. There we're told, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. Now, at times, 
God gives Satan permission to deceive. And this is one such example where the kings of the whole world will march against Israel through the deception of this unholy trinity. Satan is going to convince the leaders of the world that they actually have a shot at this. It's incredible when you think about it. He's going to inspire them to make this assault not only against Israel, but whom they are no doubt reading of in the revelation of God's Son that will come back. And we're told in verse 16 here, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Now, here's a picture of Har-Mageddon. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain or hill, and it relates to what we call the Mount of Megiddo. Some of you have been here with me. It's an elevated um, hill of sorts, a real small mountain, I suppose you could say, and it overlooks what we typically refer to as the Valley of Jezreel. It's a very important valley that it overlooks because some of Israel's greatest bat battles, some of history's greatest battles happened right here. If you remember, according to the book of Judges, chapter 4, Barak, as he heard the uh, word of prophecy from Deborah, he fought Sisera here near the waters of Megiddo, the Bible says. It was here in the book of Judges that Gideon, that great man of God, took his place against the Midianite forces. It was here at Megiddo that King Josiah, that godly king in Israel's history, was conquered by Pharaoh Necho, and all of Israel wept. It's a renowned Old Testament battlefield in a region that spans some 200 miles. Titus, the Roman general, fought here, as did Pompey and Richard the Lionhearted. And, and Napoleon called this very great valley the world's greatest natural battlefield. So God is allowing these three demonic spirits as a judgment to deceive the kings of the world. It reminds me of what God allowed back in 1 Kings chapter 22. Let me read to you what Micaiah said to that wicked, evil king called Ahab. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward, a demonic spirit, and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Now, King Ahab, if you remember, found it incredibly difficult to believe how one prophet could be right and 400 could be wrong. And I suppose it's not all that different today, is it? And Micaiah explained that the message of the 400 prophets was a result of a fallen angel of a deceitful spirit who was leading the king in the wrong direction. But since Ahab wanted to be deceived by his rebellious spirit, God allowed him to be deceived. Indeed, the devil is God's devil. He has no authority but that authority which God gives him. 
And that's precisely, go back to Revelation 19, that's precisely what is happening here in the 19th chapter when God allows the kings of the whole world to be deceived because they have rejected the truth. They're like putty in the hand of Satan. These lost rebels have now come once again like an act at the Tower of Babel to rebel against God Almighty. Now, here's a picture of the Valley of Jezreel. You know, the Old Testament was also translated into Greek for many Jews who lost their ability. And in Greek, it's not Jezreel, but Esdraelom. And so we also call this the Valley of Esdraelon. So don't get confused. The Valley of Jezreel and the Valley of Esdraelon, it's the same place. Now, when you look at this particular valley, it's 14 miles wide and it's about 20 miles long. You say, how could the armies of the world be represented in this place? Because this is just the staging ground. As we studied back in Revelation 14, you might want to go back and listen to the message, up and down Israel over the course of 200 miles, all of these armies of the world. Now, sometimes Christians call this the Valley of Armageddon. There is no such valley. That's what we call Christianese, where we, we make up terms, so to speak. Technically, there's no such thing as the Battle of Armageddon, though there is a battle. It's really better described as a command. But someday, probably not in the too near distant future, the spirit of demons will entice the kings and leaders of the world to come to this particular place, and they will be convinced that they can somehow wage war against God's Christ. And by the way, according to the prophet Zechariah, this is a battle not just against Israel, it is against God's Messiah, which brings me to the next point. Satan gathers his forces, but then Satan fights God's Messiah. He fights God's Messiah. We read now in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne and against his army. So here's the beast, the Antichrist, and he is the commander-in-chief, so to speak, for all of the armies of the world. And at this point, they want to make war against Jesus, against Yeshua. Their mission is to put an end to the saints of God, to the Israel of God, and to the Christ of God. They hate God. They want to make war against Him. You say, how could they be so stupid to think they can pull this off? Because they're deceived. God has sent a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. And it's no more fantastic than the fact that they murdered God when he literally physically came to the earth. And so we're told they are here to make war against God's Messiah. In between verses 19 and 20, the details are not here, but they are filled out in the prophet Zechariah. And we studied, if you remember, back in verse 15, if you were here last time, that when Jesus comes back, he's pictured as a sharp sword protruding from his mouth. And we ask, is that a literal sword or is that symbolic? And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. God often describes the Word of God with a sword. And so Paul tells us that one of our offensive pieces of weaponry as Christians is that we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But this same Word that God uses to save people, on this day, He's going to use to slaughter people. The armies of the world are going to be obliterated 
They're not going to get some nuke rocket up in the sky to take Jesus down and off of his horse. He is going to speak, and all of these armies are going to be wiped out. God predicts this in Psalm 2. David wrote, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed. And then the Bible records God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In one sense, Armageddon is nothing more than the laughter of God. And he will put his son there in the temple mount where he will rule and reign from his holy mountain for 1,000 years. But there's a third truth that I want us to see. Not only are Satan's forces doomed in Armageddon, not only are they drawn to Armageddon by these deceiving spirits, I want you to notice how Satan's forces are destroyed by Armageddon. The very event that man uses hoping to destroy God's Messiah will end up bringing their own destruction. First notice how Satan's malicious pair are judged. I want you to see how his malicious pair are judged. We're told now in verse 20, and the beast, the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So Christ rides in the sky, we behind him, And by his word, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Put out on the margin next to this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. We've already studied that this great victory takes place back in verse 15 from the sharp sword that protrudes from Christ's mouth. And again, it's a symbol for the word of God. Paul tells us, then that lawless one, one of the titles for the antichrist, that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay, how? With the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Put out in the margin next to this verse, Isaiah 11 and verse 4. There the prophet Isaiah informs us, with the breath of his lips, that is, with his word, he, God, will slay the wicked. So Paul and John and Isaiah all concur it's going to happen by the power of Christ. Word. However, John tells us something that we learn nowhere else, that this dynamic duo are going to be destroyed on this day in the lake of fire. The beast and the prof, false prophet for their great evil are thrown into the fire that burns with brimstone. Now, we'll see the rest of the lost of all time will not be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone until the end of the thousand years are over. But this is a reverse rapture of sorts. When the rapture happens for God's people, and it could happen today, those who know the Lord Jesus will be caught up in a split second, in the twinkling of an eye, this mortal will put on immortality, this perishable will put on imperishable, and will be changed. And we will receive a new body suited to walk in streets of gold. And this reverse rapture, these two men are caught up, 
And they are given new bodies, just like Jesus said all unbelievers would likewise receive a new body in John chapter 5, verse 29, and they will receive a body that is suited not for streets of gold, but for the lake of fire, where they will suffer day and night forever and ever without their bodies ever being consumed. Now, I hope you realize that today when an unbeliever dies, and we'll study this in the 20th chapter, I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, he doesn't go to hell, so to speak, to the lake of fire. He goes to Hades. Now, it's an awful place. Jesus described it in Luke 16 as a place where there's forever thirst. It's a place where men are in constant agony. Anyone who goes there, it's a horrible place. But it's not the final resting place. We will learn in the 20th chapter that Hades, and everyone in it, is then cast into the lake of fire. But the very first two people to be there is not even Satan. Satan's not in hell today with a pitchfork running around and poking people. He's never been there, not yet. He is going there at the end, as we will see, of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. But these two, these two wonder-working, miracle-performing, deceiving men are going to be the first recipients in the lake of fire. That's important. That's not by accident. And God is going to do this for a particular reason. Together, these two men were great deceivers. They deceived millions, literally billions of people across the planet. These two pretenders are going to be the first recipients, and I think God is sending a message that we'll study in the 20th chapter, that while hell is awful for anyone who goes there, it's not the same for everyone who goes there. That while heaven is wonderful for everyone who goes there, it's not the same for everyone who goes there. There are degrees of rewards, and as we're going to study, there are degrees of punishment. And by the way, this is the first time the lake of fire is introduced to us in the Bible. The writers of the New Testament and Jesus describe it, but John is the first one to title it the lake of fire, and it burns with brimstone. That describes its intense heat and its wicked putrid odor. Now, either Jesus and John and the rest of the writers of Scripture are sheer liars or they are telling the truth. And I know today people don't want to talk about hell, but you cannot preach the whole counsel of Scripture as every pastor is called to do and bury this truth. Satan's forces are destroyed by Armageddon. First, the malicious parish judge. Secondly, Satan's misled people. They are killed. The misled people of this world are killed. We read now in verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The wicked who have died up to this point in human history... They are in Hades. And once again, these people that are killed, they are no doubt in Hades. But at the end of the thousand years, they will be put in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And with the image of these two evil men who have led the world in evil, it is a reminder, it's a caution 
to people who will read this book and who have read this book for some 2,000 years to get their lives right with God Almighty because in an instant, the armies of the world will be killed and the Bible says that the birds were filled with their flesh. Hundreds of millions of birds who blacken the sky will have more than they can actually eat. Now, what does this mean for us today? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time. Number one, I am reminded from this passage of Scripture never to doubt the perfection of God's justice. Don't ever doubt the perfection of God's justice. We just read in verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Again, why isolate these two men? With greater wickedness comes greater penalty. And these two men did more to damn the souls of humans than anyone in all of recorded history. Yes, there are degrees of punishment in hell, and I will prove that to you when we come to the 20th chapter. The university professor who delights in running down the Bible and the morality of the Bible to contribute further to the demise of college students that fill their classrooms, those men and women will receive a greater judgment. The greedy person who flaunts his wealth before men and causes those around him to look with more covetous eyes, they will receive a greater judgment. The immoral man who flaunts his immorality, who invites others to participate with him, who creates a movie or an internet site or a song that is driven by sensuality, they will receive a greater judgment. The politician who legislates evil, who says that LGBTQ+, however many letters you want to put it after, is okay, when God says it is an utter perversion. These politicians who are legislating the murder of little babies, yes, they will receive a greater judgment. God will not treat every sinner alike. And this passage of Scripture reminds me of that. Second, I learn never to doubt the power of God's Word. I am reminded never to doubt the power of God's Word. Not only should I not doubt the perfection of His justice, I should never doubt the power of His Word. One word from Christ, and all the armies of the world are instantly defeated. I hope you understand something about the power of the spoken word by the living word. And I'm not talking about the Kenneth Copeland trash, the name it, claim it garbage of our day. Oh, be careful what you say. That could happen to you. Oh, I got a cold. Oh, maybe I have a cold. And all this nonsense. I am talking about the power of the living word as he is termed, as he speaks the word of God. This like Christ is a divine human book. It's written by men, but men who are moved along by the Holy Spirit. Christ is a divine human person. He's all God, all man. He's not half God, half man. He's not all God, no man. He's not all man, no God. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And when he speaks, 
It happens. In Mark 4, there on the Sea of Galilee, they were in a ferocious storm. And he spoke and he said, be quiet. And the sea became like glass. In Capernaum, a paralyzed man was lowered down through the roof of that home. And Jesus said, get up. And he immediately was healed. And there was strength to those paralyzed limbs. In Bethany, as he stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, he said, Lazarus, come out. And immediately he is brought back to life. That little girl, that precious little one who had died and the people had come to cry and to pay their last respects over the death of such a little one. And Jesus said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she was immediately brought back to life. In Gadara, those two men who were indeed filled with some 2,000 demons, Jesus said, come out. And all those demons are destroyed in some 2,000 pigs that are driven into the sea. Every time Christ attended a funeral, he interrupted it. He disturbed what was happening because he is alive. But I want to tell you, on this day, he will bring death by his word. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And all of the might of man and all of the forces of Satan will not be able to stop God's Messiah in one world. These 200 million plus people are going to become bird food. And by the way, it is a reminder to me that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a book that is like a sharp sword. I am not here this morning sharing my opinion. I am here sharing the word of God. And when we speak against homosexuality and adultery and fornication and transgenderism and legalizing pot and killing little children, we are speaking with the authority of God Almighty and we should make no apology for it whatsoever. Third and finally... I'm reminded never to doubt the seriousness of God's judgment. The same inspired word of God that so wondrously describes the grace and salvation of God is equally descriptive of the judgment of God for those who reject God's grace. The tendency of the liberals in our day is to emphasize the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God, and they preach another Jesus. But this passage on judgment is just as inspired as those passages that speak of God's love and God's grace. And someday Jesus is going to come back and the kingdoms of our God are going to become the kingdoms of his Christ. I want to ask you this morning, have you made peace with God? Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Colossus. For it was the Father's good pleasure... For all the fullness to dwell in him and Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Listen, by nature, we are children of wrath. But you can sign a peace treaty this morning with the Prince of Peace. 
Look, if I didn't know that my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I, I wouldn't want this day to end without it getting settled. And if you're uncertain, I'll help you this morning. And when he returns, you won't have to worry whether you're being represented by these armies or if you're actually a soldier in this army, because if you're born again and Christ comes for you, you'll be riding back with him with all the armies from heaven. You won't be in these armies here on the earth. But if you're not saved, and this happens in our lifetime, you will literally physically either be in Israel for this battle or you will be hurraying and giving high fives to those who are representing you. You say, how do I make my life right with Christ? One, you have to see your sin. If you don't call your drunkenness bad, you'll never get saved. If you don't call your adultery and your fornication and your homosexuality and your greed and your covetousness sin, you'll never get saved. You've got to call sin, sin. You've got to see your sin for what it is. You've got to see God's Messiah. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. And you must come in faith and ask Him to be your Lord. Have you ever done that? You should. And I invite you to do it right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you are unsure that heaven is really your home. Listen, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't earn gifts. Someone else does the payment. And Christ, with his own precious blood on a cross, purchased your salvation. He did for you what will take you an eternity in hell to do. And if you will come to him today on the basis of his death and resurrection and say, Lord Jesus, save me and change me, he'll do that right now for all of eternity. Would you do that? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Now, Father, I realize that many within the sound of my voice have crossed that line. But we are living in the apathy and the lethargy of these last days. Our minds and hearts are consumed and distracted by worldly things. And we can't even remember the last time we tried to share Jesus with someone. Forgive us for our disobedience. Replace lukewarmness with a hot passion to live for Christ, to follow him fully, to warn men and women and boys and girls of the wrath that is going to come. Help us in this new week. Let it be the first day for the rest of our lives. May you allow in your mercy this church to be a vibrant witness. May we not be satisfied with the fact that we're here to be fed. But may we repent of our arrogance and our pride and be passionate about lost people all around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You said you've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And you've commissioned us and given us the privilege to do the same. Help us to do it. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.